0: Dear
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Red Flag Radio. This is Emma Norton. Chloe's not here today, but I am excited to bring you the first episode of a three-part series with Jordan Humphreys. So Jordan just published a book called Indigenous Liberation and Socialism. I'm about halfway through it and it's a fantastic read. It explores the hidden history of the fight for Indigenous rights here in Australia and it puts forward a socialist strategy for Indigenous liberation. Jordan is a socialist activist here in Sydney and he's been researching this particular topic for a number of years uh, as well as being involved in activism around it. And he's published some of the fruits of that research in the Marxist Left Review, and now he's uh, also published this excellent book. I'm recording this episode on indigenous land, on the land of the Gadigal people, land that was stolen, uh, never ceded, and always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome, Jordan.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I thought we could start by talking about the the state of Indigenous politics today and and you know where things are at for Indigenous people in this country something that you start the book off with.
0: Yeah I think this is important yeah context for why I kind of wrote the book really because we're in I think a very difficult situation in terms of Indigenous politics today. On the one hand particularly over the last kind of decade or so, but even going further back than that, there's been a growing you know, recognition of the horrific crimes against Indigenous people, both historically and continuing today. There's greater support for things like cultural recognition, you know, acknowledge, acknowledgence of country, uh, political representation. You can see that particularly around uh, the voice question, which I'm sure we'll get into. So on one hand, all that's kind of going on. Um, But on the other hand, Indigenous oppression continues um, pretty unabated, really. And you can see that on so many levels, whether it's um, economic inequality, which still remains really stark between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. In the last 10 years, there's only been a 1% uh, change in the um, unemployment rate for Indigenous people, for instance, so pretty terrible. Um, And it's similar on health, education outcomes. And then you can... See it particularly horrifically in things like black deaths in custody, um, in the incarceration rate for Indigenous people. You know, despite being less than four percent of the population, they are more than thirty percent of the incarcerated population, and in some areas like the Northern Territory, it goes up to eighty-three percent. Um, so I think that is really, yeah, one of the kind of stark contrasts in terms of Indigenous politics today. On the one hand, this growing kind of recognition that the serious problems going on, at the same time as The reality that oppression endures.
1: Yeah Um, and well let's talk about the the voice because while that oppression endures the voice is kind of the only supposed reform being being offered up by this labor government Um, and you talk in the book about there being sort of three main responses and and attitudes to the voice Um, the first of all the kind of liberal establishment and labor Um, maybe let's start with them you point out that lots of big business for example like including mining corporations that exploit Indigenous land actually support the voice. Can you explain why?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the starting point for that is the voice is not any threat to them (laughs) on any serious level. Like, they know that the proposal for an Indigenous voice to parliament is going to be like an advisory body. So despite what Peter Dutton and the right-wingers say, it's not going to have, like, veto rights over all government policies or any government policies, actually. It's just going to be a body which, you know, write reports, the with government ministers, etc., cetera, about, um, you know, concerns to do with Indigenous issues, um, but it's not actually going to, you know, empower Indigenous people to stop mining corporations from overturning their land rights and exploiting that land. It's not going to, you know, stop the police from harassing Indigenous people. It's not going to force governments or business to actually invest, you know, the huge amounts of money which is needed to turn around, um inequality in the indigenous community. So well
1: yeah, if you say in the book that for the Labour government this is part of their a general overall strategy, not just around Indigenous issues, but of of kind of presenting a progressive face to the public while pursuing this right wing alliance with corporations, the bosses, the corporate media, um, and wealthy but socially liberal Australians. Can you explain that some more?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really key to understanding what the Labour government is doing more generally, like you say, not just around Indigenous issues. Um, labor, in reality, is pursuing like a very right-wing agenda and strategy. Um, and I know you've talked about this in previous podcast episodes, so you can see it in terms of you know, fighting inflation, which means putting the burden of economic um, uh, uh, you know, chaos upon um, ordinary working-class people. Um, they're you know, saying that they care about climate change while they're letting um, climate change criminals continue to pollute the planet, expand, create more coal mines, etc. Um, and Indigenous politics is very similar for Labour, where they want to be seen as being socially progressive about it, that they're different to the Liberals um, and the kind of right wing of politics in order to uh, present this kind of progressive gloss to people. Absolutely. And that's important for trying to kind of keep up the, I- the idea that Labour are some you know, really different government um, to previous ones.
1: Yeah, and I think one... Example of how hollow it is for labor is that a lot of their campaign for the voice consists of saying it won't do anything. Don't worry, <laughs> it won't. It won't really change um, change the world, or you know, it won't have all these veto powers. It'll be a kind of damp squib. Um, the other section of of the ruling class that you talk about and and of society is the no campaign and what a racist disgrace they are. Uh, obviously, led by Dutton's liberals and and Hanson's One Nation. And the right-wing press who were basically all running a big fear campaign against um, The Voice. You go through in in the book some of the things that they're claiming people would have heard uh, some of this. You know, things like The Voice will confer special privileges on Indigenous people, um, that it will re-racialise the country, I think was Dutton's words. Um, and sections of the far right are even claiming there'll be like an apartheid system that oppresses whites, essentially, or oppresses non-indigenous people. Uh, it's kind of obvious, I know, but can you explain what's wrong with those arguments?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're really vile, and they've also been uh, uh, published in like the official yes and no pamphlets, which are going out to people in the lead up to the referendum, um, where the no um, pamphlet just like says all sorts of crazy stuff. Like they have one section where they're like, "I oh, vote no." in order to stop the activists because if the voice gets up, it will abolish the police um, and, uh, uh, you know, change the date of Australia Day or whatever. Um, But yeah, this is very much like part and parcel of kind of, you know, right-wing politics around race, both in Australia and internationally, actually, this idea that like, oh, maybe back, you know, decades ago Aboriginal people had it bad, but now things have gone like too far and they're now becoming like the privileged ones and, now it's like white people are kind of the oppressed ones, Um, which is, yeah, the implication more directly of like the far right of the campaign around people like Pauline Hanson and whatnot. Um, But also it's implicit in what Peter Dutton is saying, right? Like when he says it's going to re-racialize society, it's implying like what society is not racist (laughs) beforehand. Um, And yeah, when he starts talking about unearned privileges, um, you know, Tony Abbott, people remember him. He's thrown his hat in the, um, the ring as well, like talking about how, it's like um, separatism, which is what has hurt indigenous people because everyone talks about they're different. Really, they need to be just treated the same as white people. And a lot of this uh, echoes the kind of racism of previous eras in Australia, particularly the kind of assimilationist era where it was said, oh, yeah, indigenous people kind of have it hard. You know, they're disadvantaged because you know, alcoholism is what they often talked about, crime, et cetera, and oh, they're kind of poor, et cetera. Um, but the way to solve that is that they need to give up being Aboriginal and just need to become like white people like everyone else, and stop be treated differently. And that's the root cause, apparently, of why um, you know they're in such a terrible state. So yeah, it's really a pretty vile campaign, a very right wing campaign, and unfortunately, it's uh, got a lot of steam behind it, I think partly because there is this an embedded racism within a section of the Australian population for sure. And then the uh, the kind of yes uh, side of the campaign lead up to referendum has been pretty kind of tepid and weak really um, and it hasn't put forward a very strident argument in favour of the voice and so that I think has emboldened the right to go even more on the attack about it and the fact that you know the polls aren't looking great for the yes vote um, just you know, further increases their kind of vitriol around it.
1: Yeah, and Labour haven't really pointed out what's racist in the in the right wing's mm. campaign either. They're just defensive about it and mm. saying, "Oh no, no, it, it won't do those things. Don't worry, there won't be apartheid." Like it's so ridiculous. <laughs> Rather than saying "shut up, you morons," they've you know seeded uh, ground to it on some level. I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: and I think um Labour really caught in a difficult. Well, they put themselves in a difficult position because on the one hand they say. Um, like you are saying, that like, oh, the voice is only like a symbolic thing, like it's nothing to be worried about, it's not like some big radical change. But then they also kind of have to say, oh, but it's not just symbolic because it's like meaningful at the same time. And so they're caught kind of thinking the bind between trying to say both those things. And it's in that kind of space that the right can then have a field day because they just continually point out the contradictions and kind of what Labor's saying about it, um, which is an expression I think of some of the problems with the voice proposal itself.
1: Yeah, well, lastly, you talk about there being um, you know, dissenting progressives like Jenny Munro and Lydia Thorpe who oppose the voice to parliament. Uh, what, are you, what are some of their arguments?
0: Yeah, I think there's a few different issues here. So there was a dissent to the voice to parliament proposal actually way back when it was first uh, proposed in 2017 at a conference that happened at Uluru Um, There were a number of delegates who, like, walked out of the convention. Well, it was discussed. And there were a bunch of issues, I think, with that convention for sure. Like, one is, it was, like, there was no real, like, amendments or anything you could make to the proposal. Basically, it was like, put either you vote for or you don't vote for at the end. Um, And it was kind of stitched up beforehand. And people walked out because they could rightfully see, like, all the limitations of the voice, how this is being used, how it wasn't, yeah, a very serious proposal to deal with the structural roots of racism in Australian society. And those kind of criticisms have continued. We saw that at the Invasion Day rallies um, early this year, for instance, where there was a lot of criticism um, from the front about the limitations of the voice proposal. I think one of the difficulties that arises here is for the left, like how do you position yourself exactly? Because we talked a lot about the voice being pretty crap, his all's kind of, you know, failings, um, but then also there's this really right wing campaign that's, um, you know, gaining momentum against it. Um, so in that situation, I think you do have to have a kind of critical yes position where you vote yes for it while still being critical of all the limitations proposal in order to try and stop the you know, racist rat from having a victory. Um, but there's, you know, just there's different perspectives on that, I guess. So there's, yes, yeah, some Indigenous people like Lydia forpe and others who have put forward a more strident kind of no um, uh, vote in this situation. I think they do kind of ignore the issue of like, or at least downplay the issue of like the racist right and their kind of impact upon things and more kind of broadly what the referendum will mean to most people. Like for most people, it'll be a vote either in favor or kind of against indigenous people. and um, that's how most people are kind of going to understand it. They're not really going to understand, you know, all the different issues that are coming up around, um, sovereignty and treaties and stuff, which, um, is being raised by sections of the more progressive, um, people who are critical of the voice. And despite that, there are a lot of words said about the limitations, of the voice those people is absolutely correct. Then there's kind of a broader, uh, issue, which is, uh, uh, one which I discuss quite a bit in my book, which is the whole question of settler colonialism, of indigenous nationalism, of uh, identity politics around indigenous issues, um, which is very intertwined with um, the issues of the voice and kind of criticisms of the voice. So a lot of people argue that you know the voice is bad because it will cede sovereignty from from indigenous people. Instead, there should be a system of treaties between um, indigenous nations. Is where it's often kind of discussed. I think this raises a bunch of issues about how do we understand um, Indigenous people and their relationship to Australian society and Australian capitalism. Like, what are some of the features of Indigenous politics, both today and historically, and the likelihood of um, those features into the future, and how you know we under, kind of understand them. Like, is Indigenous struggle an anti-colonial struggle? Is it against a colonial society um, is one of the big issues which is kind of raised by this, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, you say in the book that that those the dominance of those ideas of settler colonial theory and identity politics is kind of one of the main motivations for you in writing this book. What are some of the other motivations for writing the book?
0: Yeah, um, there's a few motivations, I guess. Like the first is the real uh, gap between the kind of potential for activism. Um, around indigenous issues and then other reality kind of what's going on, which are uh, has really struck struck me for years, but particularly you can feel it in the kind of you know early 2020s that we're in at the moment where indigenous justice is this just one of the big kind of issues for left-wing people. You know, when you ask someone like, oh, what do you care about as a young left-wing person? It's like indigenous issues, LGBTI rights, economic inequality, climate change, you know, it's up there as one of the big things. And that's expressed itself in you know, sizable demonstrations, even you know, just this year of Invasion Day, like the one in Melbourne was the biggest one ever, for instance. Um, and more generally, just like it's a big topic of discussion. Black deaths in custody, incarceration, um, you know, issues like land rights, etc. So on one hand, all that's kind of going on, and young people are you know, much more supportive of Indigenous rights than previous generations. Absolutely. But at the same time, there's not really an Indigenous movement that's happening. You know, in most cities, um, the people who organise the invasion air rallies are often a group of like ten people, <laughs> and often the same kind of people have organised it for years or even decades in some cases. And so, it hasn't um, manifested itself in some ongoing kind of anti-racist movement that's drawing you know, hundreds, let alone thousands, of activists in a kind of yeah uh, you know, more um, sustained kind of way um, in activism for indigenous rights. And so. Uh, one of the issues I want to explore in the book, I guess, is kind of why is this the case? and What are some of the lessons we learned from previous movements? What are some of the changes which have happened around the issues of racism in society in recent decades? Um, and how can we uh, explore these uh, topics in order to help galvanize movements for justice into the future?
1: I think the first part, where you go through the origins of um, Indigenous racism in Australia and and colonialism, is really, really useful um, in actually debunking some of the um, some of the major claims of the kind of settler settler colonial theorists. Um, So we'll we'll stick to that for uh, for here. The interesting
0: thing is the kind of European colonial project uh, begins with the feudal monarchies actually in Portugal um, and Spain after. Uh, the reconquests when they drove out the Muslims and the Jews in the 1400s, Um, and their expansion into the Americas, of course, which was a really brutal project where they uh, destroyed a whole series of these societies in the pursuit of gold and other riches. Um, And this uh, created a situation where they needed to bring in uh, laborers from uh, Europe and then also from um, Africa and particularly enslaved Africans in order to get the resources that they needed from under the grounds, the gold, the silver, um, and other minerals, um, and to you know, establish the basis for an exploitive kind of relationship, um, in these kind of countries. But this, even though it began under feudalism, really encouraged the development of capitalism. It was one of the points Marx and Engels talk about quite a bit, that colonization really, um, stands at the kind of origins of capitalism. It comes, you know, dripping from head to toe and blood and dirt, as they say. And, uh, The colonization in uh, the Americas is definitely a part of it. The slave trade in Africa, of course. And these things uh, produce huge wealth for merchants and the kind of rising capitalist class within Europe. And this really kind of horrific relationship is established between industrial production uh, within Western Europe, the slave trade in Africa, and then the continued colonization and exploitation um, uh, within the kind of colonial world. And that is really the background then to the colonization of Australia, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, it was very much driven, even the initial idea, to like set up a penal colony in Australia um, by the kind of interests of capitalism.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the initial idea, like you say, is for a penal colony in Australia to offload the convicts of um, the British Empire. But pretty quickly it becomes a, an established settler colonial society, right? It expands beyond just the idea of sending prisoners there. Why is that?
0: Yeah, once the profitable nature of Australia became clear, um, then it started to take on a life of its own. So, you know, British um, investors started to work out there was money to be made from Australia, um, Yeah, from farming at first and then minerals and mining later on. Um, And this encouraged further uh, development within Australia and kind of pushed it beyond just being a penal colony um, there started to be more free settlers, it started to be more kind of private enterprise and private capitalists, um, and this started to transform the Australian colonial project from just being like a narrow penal one into being more broadly a settler colonial society similar to uh, some of the colonies that existed in South America and in North America and the United States.
1: And that process of that beginning of expansion, of claiming the land for those profitable purposes that you mentioned, is what leads the um, British settlers into conflict with the Indigenous population. I mean, there's a little bit of that at the start already, but um, it turns into a kind of full-blown war and and genocide um, against the Indigenous population. Uh, once these these sort of treasures of Australia are, are discovered.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as our capitalism expands out from the initial kind of colonial centres, uh, particularly in Sydney, uh, then it comes into more and more conflict with Indigenous people. So uh, as you're saying, there's conflict from the very beginning because there's Indigenous people right there where they set up kind of the first colony and the convicts and everything. Um, but that becomes even more a feature as they kind of spread out. And really there's a conflict here between the kind of capitalist system which is being imported from Britain and the traditional societies that Indigenous people lived in, in which there was no uh, profit, there was no separate class of exploiters where land was held in common. There was no private ownership over it. Um, And that system is fundamentally incompatible with capitalism. Like, in order for capitalism to sink roots in Australia, they had to destroy that whole system of governance that Indigenous people had, they had to transform land from something that was collective and cherished by uh, Indigenous communities into something which could be parceled up and sold to individuals um, in which they could do whatever they wanted with it in order mm. to exploit it and make as much money as they can. Um, so there was a very like, fundamental conflict here between two kind of modes of production, really. Mm. Um, and, yeah, as the uh, colonial uh, system expanded, uh, Indigenous people resisted this destruction of their the, their societies and how they had lived their lives. And this uh, led to, yeah, more and more conflicts, what people call the frontier wars, mm. um, which, you know, were really brutal, which Indigenous people fought very heroically despite the odds being stacked very much against them by the, you know, superior firepower and whatnot of the British um, Empire and their military. Um, uh, but, yeah, it resulted in, like, the decimation of many Indigenous people, most famously in Tasmania, but, you know, much uh broader than just that.
1: I think when people think of frontier wars they'll have an image of what happened in America with with you know white settlers um you know and and small farmers uh, going and and themselves actually clearing the land of of indigenous people to take their land and and settle it. But you say it was quite different actually here in Australia to to that picture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a few kind of parts to say, I guess. So first, yeah, the reality of the frontier wars absolutely were a big part. Australian history and we're kind of covered up and denied but like you know the kind of institutions of Australian capitalism because they didn't want to admit that the society being built on theft and murder and genocide and everything um no you know nation-state's going to be admitting to that um Australia is no different and there'll a whole series of fights around this in the 90s and 2000s Mm. around like the history of Australia um and the reality of what happened to Indigenous people absolutely I think it's been established, yeah, beyond doubt that there was these massacres that took place. Most recently, there was um, a map project that happened, um, which I talk about in the book, which went through hundreds of cases of frontier massacres from the very beginnings of Australian uh, colonisation into the 20th century. Um, And they were very interesting, I think, because they didn't just note all the different massacres that took place. They also uh, noted the... The people involved in the massacres, like mm. who was driving these while they're happening. And what they found was that 50% of all the massacres that took place were directly organized by mm. what they call agents of the state. So the police, the military, you know, government officials, or whatever, they were actually going in there and doing the massacres themselves or directly organizing the massacres. And then the other 50% of massacres that took place were done by uh, private uh, contractors or employees for big businesses. Um, And often with the compliance and support of agents Mm. of the state as well. Um, So it was very much like a process driven from the top of society. And I think that's really important to understand because often it's kind of just seen as like, oh, the frontier wars are just like this inevitable kind of Mm. thing. And they arose out of like misunderstandings or something between like, yeah, small farmer settlers on the edges of colonial society and Aboriginal people. Maybe they came in and stole their food or something and then the you know, white farmers got angry and, and shot them. Um, but that was a very minor part of the frontier wars. The main thing was the actual agents of the state mm-hmm. driving the expansion of capitalism, coming to conflict with indigenous people and then driving them away or destroying them in order to open up um, the land and the spaces for um, further capitalist um, expansion. Um, and that's important because, yeah, sometimes writers want to kind of, like almost blame kind of like the lower classes, like the convicts, and say they're the main violent ones. So, you know, one of the examples I talk about in the book is Richard Broom. He's written uh, quite a quite famous kind of history of um, Aboriginal Australians. He, in that, argues that like, oh, the convicts, you know, because they were in prisons and had violent, criminal lives, etc., they would be the most prone to violence. But the like reality, the raw data of um, what happened in the Frontier Wars doesn't really bear that out. And it kind of ignores the fact that these systems of, of you know, colonialism and capitalism set up this to be an inevitable conflict, really, between Indigenous people and the society which is being constructed.
1: And, like, I mean, most of the, you know, convicts, like, hated the British Empire. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they weren't particularly interested in the British Empire having these wins over Aboriginal people and being able to steal most of, you know, steal all the land, like... Plenty of convicts were Irish and Scottish, and had been sent to Australia specifically because they had rebelled against the British Empire. So they weren't exactly good allies for the um, the British here in in their you know colonial conquest.
0: And even when they weren't like directly allies, they had a common oppressor, <laughs> which yeah. was the you know the kind of British um, state that had been set up um, in Australia to oversee this kind of colonial exploitation.
1: One story I know is from Moreton Bay Prison, which is an old convict prison in up in Queensland, which was like notorious for the horrific treatment of Irish convicts in particular. And um, actually an Indigenous warrior like killed the main warden of the <laughs> prison and like all the Irish convicts celebrated. And so, you know, again, it's yeah. not necessarily, it would be hard to have had some, you know, real kind of, um uh a strong alliance, but certainly their interests were aligned in a lot of cases. So,
0: Yeah, and another uh, reason why this is kind of possible is because of the kind of class composition, I guess, of the you know settler population in Australia, um, which is also important to understand. So, Australian society was like it is today. Um, it was very urbanized. Like, most people lived in the cities on the coast, not like in like lots of small towns and small farms and stuff across the country, which makes it different to some other kind of um, uh, colonized countries, like in North America, for instance. And then even the section population who were uh, living in rural areas, and there was you know a substantial section population like this. Most of them were not like small farmers. Um, most of them owned nothing. Um, in fact, it was a very proletarianized. Um, section of society from very early on. So there was no kind of semi feudal peasantry like there was in Latin America. There was no yeah, f- small farmer class like there was in the United States, well, up into even the 20th century, actually. In Australia, most people lived in rural areas, were like itinerant laborers um, and rural kind of workers who worked with cattle or in shearing and these kind of industries. Um, They didn't own a little farm, often they didn't own any house at all, (laughs) or if they did, maybe it was back, you know, towards the coast or something. Um, And so that creates a different kind of dynamic relationship with Indigenous people, I think, where they're not directly involved in kind of their dispossession exploitation the vast majority of time.
1: Well... And and so, you you know, obviously the origins of the Australian capitalist state are this colonial settler state and there is this process of, you know, driving Aboriginal people off the land um, and taking that land. Um, But you do talk about how it it transforms, that eventually that process of the actual settling of Australia and the expanding uh, is over and, you know, finishes with the end of the frontier wars um, when Aboriginal people have basically been defeated. Um, And... I guess the, the question you deal with in the book is like, why did racism continue beyond that? There's an obvious need for racism when you're committing genocide and clearing Aboriginal people off the land. But why is it necessary once Aboriginal people have been defeated and the Australian state can just do whatever it wants?
0: Yeah, I think this is a really important part of the history. Um, and it's important to clarify what I mean by this, because for a lot of people, they hear like, oh, you're saying that colonization's over what you're saying is there's no racism anymore. Indigenous people are treated great. It's all fine. Absolutely not. There's definitely ongoing racism, like I talked about at the start. Absolutely, Indigenous people are oppressed. But it's more about specifying how they're oppressed, like what structures are oppressing them. Um, And this relates to the whole kind of broader settler colonial argument that we'll get into in more detail. Um, But in terms of my argument about why it continues, it's, it really goes through several stages, which are all linked towards capitalism, I guess, as a system. So at first, um, in the aftermath of the frontier wars, Indigenous people are really pushed to the margins of kind of colonial society, um, even more than Indigenous people of other countries, actually. So like, there's no treaty signed with Indigenous people, quite famously, in Australia. They don't have even like the limited political representation like Maori do in New Zealand, where you know, from the 1800s, they have like uh, designated seats in parliament, and there's a system of, you know, they're still very pressed, but there's some system of representation towards the New Zealand state. None of that exists for Indigenous people in Australia whatsoever, much more marginalized and ground down and excluded um, from things, absolutely. In response to that, at first, the colonial authorities have this idea, like Governor Macquarie and so forth, that oh, indigenous people will just be able to be kind of subsumed into Australian society. And they even kind of say like, oh, maybe we should like, you know, train them a bit to become like, you know, workmen of some kind of sort or farmers or something. And then they can just be incorporated into the kind of colonial society. Um, and they believe that if they did that, then Aboriginal people will kind of give up being Aboriginal and they'll just kind of become white people. So it's <laughs> from very on this kind of assimilationist idea, I suppose. Um Uh, But as we know, Aboriginal people didn't just like dissolve into society. Um, They remained their own distinct ethnic kind of racial group. Um, And for a lot of um, Aboriginal people, it was very hard to integrate into Australian society anyway, um, into colonial society. The kind of workforce, you know, like it is now, probably even more the case back then was a very, very exploited one. Mm -hmm. It was really horrible. So, Indigenous people were occasionally brought into work, um, uh, sometimes in, like, really horrific conditions, like the pearling industry, Um, but even when they were brought into work, you know, in more kind of, whatever, traditional kind of workplaces, whether it's in the shearing industry or or farming um, or even some kind of laboring work. Often it was at the very bottom rungs of that where they were either paid nothing or paid a lot less than white workers. Um, They were often fired when, you know, there was a recession or economic difficulties. Um, So it was very hard for them to, yeah, become kind of integrated into Australian capitalism. And so they really continued to be this uh, racially oppressed minority within colonial society after their initial dispossession.
1: Um, Yeah. And one of the famous... Parts of or institutions, I should say, of Indigenous oppression were the missions. What role did they play? Like, why were they set up?
0: Yeah, I think they were a really important institution, absolutely. Um, And they really sprung out of the fact that Indigenous people were not seen as very important for the economic development of colonial society in Australia. So some industries were they used, particularly. In kind of the far north and west of Australia, where either there was no convicts, it was difficult to get convicts and free settlers to go and work. Um, but in a lot of Australia, they were you know very marginalised and excluded, and so they weren't all these like work opportunities um, for them, even if they did want to work in kind of you know, European um, forms of employment. Um, and so the missions were set up, and in, initially, this is a place to, like dump indigenous people basically; like they're driven off their lands. They just want to like put them somewhere out of the way where they're not going to you know, get on the road of you know, pastoral expansion or mining or any of these other kind of industries.
1: You do talk about how you know, things do change from the, that kind of protection board mission system towards uh, assimilationism as, a, as a, a kind of government strategy of the day in about the 1950s. Um, yeah, why, why does that system of racism and the institutions used kind of shift at that time?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the protection system kind of is the next stage after the kind of mission system, I guess. And it arises out of the reality that the indigenous population has been you know, massively reduced compared to the initial invasion throughout the 1800s. And so there is kind of this concern in England um, amongst kind of authorities there as well as in Australia, they're like, as I was saying before, Indigenous people are supposedly a dying race. Something needs to be done to protect them, Hence, a protection system. And there's various kind of institutions set up. So, Aboriginal protection boards so in most of the states. Um, various legislations are brought in to control, like who Aboriginal people can marry or not marry. Um, it's illegal for them to drink in a lot of places, control over, um, forcing people to live in missions, taking them away from missions if they're seen as kind of rebellious or disruptive. Um, and a whole series of other kind of aspects of indigenous life is brought under the control of the protection system. So it's, yeah, pretty horrible and racist, obviously, the origins of all sorts of things, like um, child separations, which comes even more foreign into the future. Assimilation kind of arises. Initially, it's kind of seen as a somewhat of a critique of the protection system. So the idea is like, oh, the protection system, you know, maybe it's kind of, whatever, stopped Indigenous people from being totally wiped out. But by the early years of the 20th century, early decades, it's becoming pretty obvious that Indigenous people are not a dying race, even though the idea continues to exist long after this is clear. And that there is a big chunk of Indigenous people who do not live in like the very extreme remote communities, living a traditional way of life. There's a very uh, small section of Indigenous people like that and nor have they like, assimilated into society. So most Indigenous people are kind of in between those two um, sections of the kind of categories that are being con- constructed by the kind of racist Australian government. And so assimilation arises as a supposed solution to this problem. Um, and so this really massively pushes forward the whole issue of the stolen generation, of like, taking um, Indigenous kids away from their parents of I'm um, trying to get them to, uh, intermarry with white people in order to like dilute the you know, evil Aboriginal blood, um, and to try and like forcibly yeah, assimilate them into the rest of Australia. And they kind of argue like, oh, then things will be you know, good for them once they just become, and white people like everyone else.
1: And you say in the book that by the 1970s, even that that system of of assimilationism goes into complete crisis. Why is that?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two parts to this. One is kind of in a way similar to the previous protection era, like the assimilation uh, whole project is based on like a fallacy. Um, the reality is that after it's introduced, the numbers of indigenous people who are not assimilated um, and also not living in you know, traditional ways of life continues to increase um, and becomes a big section of society, actually. Um, so in New South Wales, for instance, by like the 1960s, the biggest section of indigenous people don't live on the missions. Um, they live in like other urban slums like Redfern and Waterloo, places like that, um, uh, other places in Sydney, or around kind of like in semi-industrial areas like Newcastle, Wollongong, or in kind of rural kind of slum areas, but outside of missions and kind of like shanty camps and stuff outside of various rural towns. And so the whole idea of assimilation, that there's this kind of supposed... Uh, Uh, process of development in their eyes from like tribalized, detribalized into like assimilated as like broken down hasn't actually worked (laughs) Um, and a big part of that is because it ignored the reality first of all of racism that like there's all these hurdles to indigenous people even they wanted to to assimilate into white society actually because it's based on segregation all sorts of racist ideologies and practices which cut against that and also ignore the fact that there were many indigenous people who resisted this kind of push into assimilation. Didn't want to just like give up their their heritage, their language, their culture. Even if a lot of those threads had been undermined by the brutal practices of the Australian government, that proves a challenge for kind of the assimilationist system. Absolutely. Um, but then the thing which really blows it apart is the activism of the sixties and seventies. Um, so on the one hand, the land rights movement. There is the emergence of. Uh, kind of civil rights campaigning, um, which coalesces around the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines, um, which organises a whole series of kind of protesting campaigns throughout the 50s into the 60s. And then, of course, the kind of Black Power movement in the late 60s, early 70s as well. These things really come together to yeah, discredit the whole ideology of assimilation, which is this idea that Indigenous people yeah, suffer from kind of a welfare problem or a disadvantaged problem, not a problem of racism, that is really hard to sustain in the face of these kind of movements.
1: And we'll talk more in future interviews about those those struggles and, and our movements, but I guess just sum up, they obviously smashed the Liberals' assimilationist kind of strategy and they win some reforms from the Whitlam government, um, the Labor government. And you make up a criticism in the book that I think we don't often hear of the Whitlam government because um, he's usually really held up as a hero, particularly around Indigenous issues. Can you explain some of the limitations of his reforms around uh, for Indigenous people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like a lot of... Uh, Aspects of the Whitlam government, um, it's important to understand that like a lot of the reforms that are granted were because they were big social protest movements at the time. There was a big shift to the left in Australian society, the end of 20, 23 years of conservative kind of rule at a federal level. Um, so it's not just like Whitlam was this great guy, like his great ideas, he kind of came up off the top of his head or whatever. Um, he was pushed to do these things because of these, these movements that gained such immense popularity. And we're occurring in a period of general kind of advance for the left, the workers' movement, different uh, movements against suppression, and exploitation. Absolutely. Um. So in response to that, Whitlam, uh, when he comes to power, says that they're changing the policies of the government towards Indigenous people. So no more assimilation, and instead they're pursuing a policy of self-determination. Um. And that was, you know, a significant kind of uh, break with some of the practices of the past. Absolutely well, um, like I said, a product of the protest movements that occurred. But definitely those limitations to it as well. So, you know, some of the things Whitlam did is he said, all right, we're going to set up an a advisory body for the government, um, which had actually Aboriginal people in it, which previous advisory bodies they were, um, uh, under Menzies and uh, other liberal governments, but they were just like white anthropologists or whatever. Um, so they're going to set up a body like that they're going to do an inquiry into a uh, national land rights legislation um, to lay the basis for that and that they're going to significantly increase by six times actually funding for um, Aboriginal services. Um, and they're going to fund a whole bunch of the services that were created by things like the black power movement. So the Aboriginal medical service and legal services and Redfern um, being one example. In reality, things were, uh, were more complicated than that, <laughs> obviously. So, um, they set up this advisory body and it has some you know, more left-wing Aboriginal people on it, but almost immediately there's conflict with it um, with the Whitlam government because they're pushing the Whitlam government just wants this body to be kind of a rubber stamp committee that just says, Whitlam, you're great. What fantastic things you're doing. Um, so either this body has to just go along with what Whitlam wants, so when it criticizes him, then that leads to you know, strife between the two, um, so they're not the Whitlam government's not actually interested in empowering Indigenous people to totally make decisions about their own lives or have power over their communities. Um, then there's the National Land Rights legislation, which again, set forth they're talking about that, but it's very limited, the commission they set up. There's no Aboriginal people involved in it. Despite it obviously impacting them, um, compensation for Indigenous people is ruled out of order for, uh, immediately. It's only going to be applied to Crown lands, so it's irrelevant for kind of urban Indigenous communities. Um, and it's pretty obvious there's going to be a pretty high bar set for you being able to get land rights. So you're going to have to prove you know an ongoing, continuous um, uh, relationship between the land and your Indigenous community, which is very hard <laughs> in the face of dispossession. Um, and there's going to be uh, clauses put in which make sure that land rights does not overturn the rights of mining companies really um, so they have like vetoes in which is you know land rights can't overturn things which are seen as like national priorities for the government um, if like mining companies and aboriginal communities can't come to an agreement then the government can just impose a, a solution upon both parties which in the context of a pro-capitalist government you know, obviously what that uh, conclusion is going to be and then even funding for those Indigenous services, while that you know, was great compared to the very little funding they got beforehand, um, it came with, one, all sorts of strings attached. So they try to use it to kind of uh, manipulate these organizations. That comes out a lot in terms of Redfern with the medical service, the legal service. They're trying to um, do things like force those services uh, to provide the government with like detailed accounting of like all the activities they're doing, how they're spending the money, etc., which is not like laying aboriginal control our own fate. It's just government intervention into that to try and incorporate it into um, the Whitlam government's kind of projects. Um, and then also even the increase in funding starts to be cut back from the mid-70s onwards when a recession hits the world economy and Whitlam starts to pull back from you know, some of his more left-wing reforms.
1: Yeah, and then you talk about obviously under Fraser and the Hawke and Keating governments, Labour governments in the 80s that... Um, a lot of this stuff is wound back and, and actually just because of the economic conditions and neoliberalism, things get worse for Aboriginal people um, in that era. People should read the book if they want uh, more on that. But I did want to ask you about some of the more recent um, developments uh, for uh, around Aboriginal rights um, or lack thereof. The, the most obvious one is the Northern Territory intervention. Can you explain what that was?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And some of our younger listeners might not necessarily know about this. So this arises in 2007, in the lead up to the federal election, when uh, John Howard, who's a very conservative prime minister for Liberal Party, obviously, uh, really leads this whole campaign, which is backed by uh, all sorts of sections of society, including the ABC, horrendously, um, who manipulate fears around the abuse of children in the Northern Territory, in order to support the Northern Territory intervention, which is a huge government intervention in the Northern Territory um, on the basis of you know finding pedophile rings of Indigenous people, is the kind of excuse which is used. And the process, it leads to a horrific situation in the Northern Territory. So they introduce really authoritarian controls um, that the police have over, and government officials have over Indigenous communities. They set up like really demeaning signs outside of all these communities in the Northern Territory, which is like no pornography, no alcohol, et cetera, um, as you're like going into the communities, um, which is obviously yeah, very uh, demoralizing and they don't have that. Outside of also the white communities where there's plenty of pornography and, and sexual assault um, and abuse. Um, they also do things which don't really have anything to do with the supposed concern about sexual assault, which is um, like forcing communities to sign these ridiculous leases of the government to gain control over them. Um, they undermine a whole series of the indigenous um controlled organizations that exist amongst the northern territory, um, and they generally increase. the kind of uh, the power disparity that exists between indigenous people and the government is shifted even more in favour of the government and against indigenous people. Um, so yeah, it was a real attack on indigenous rights under this you know this supposed concern, and guys, um, that had bipartisan support. So Howard begins it in 2007, but then, um, and he kind of tries to use it basically to whip up Mysterio to win the election. It's kind of a part of his goal as well. Um, but then it's continued under the Rudd and then Gillard and then Rudd governments after that as well.
1: Um, I think it'd be good if we get on to settler colonial theory. You, spent, you have a chapter in your book um, trying to explain what this is and, and what's wrong with it as a theory for explaining um, Australian, uh, the indig- you know, Indigenous oppression. So can you explain first what settler colonial theory is?
0: Totally, yeah. Well, the central premise of settler colonial theory is kind of pretty easy to understand, really. It's the idea that Indigenous people are oppressed today because there's an ongoing process of colonisation. Um, so often it's summed up in kind of... Um, Slogans and stuff like, you know, colonization um, isn't an event, it's a process, um, it's an ongoing thing, it's not something which has ended, um, and so forth. Um, and it's a very popular idea. Um, amongst kind of like left-wing people in Australia, you often see it raised at like um, protests and discussions, um, articles and whatnot. Its origins lie as like kind of an academic field of discipline, I suppose, with a guy... Um, called Patrick Wolfe, who was an Australian academic who started to write about a bunch of these issues, particularly in the 90s, and he was interested in issues of racism and oppression, particularly links between the situation of indigenous people in Australia and the situation of Palestinians and the um, conflict with the Israeli state there. Um, And his theory really was focused on the idea that there's many colonial societies, as we kind of talked about before, and and many of them is a the situation where there's a small uh, number of kind of white elites overseeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions, tens of millions um, of uh, colonized people. So in a country like India or in South Africa, there's a situation like this. Um, and he points out that that is a very different situation to one in a country like Australia, where The colonial situation is not one where there's a small minority of white people overseeing a huge number of indigenous people exploiting their labor in order to make all their profits. Instead, indigenous people are really marginalized on the Mm -hmm. sides of society. And so you call those societies colonial societies, distinguished from colonial societies in general
1: and well let's get into some of what you think is wrong with this theory so i mean first there's a lot of comparison to israel and palestine um and saying that ex- effectively that ongoing settler colonial process that's clearly happening in israel i mean right now there are literal settlers you know um attacking people and attacking palestinians in the west bank um it's an ongoing process And these settler colonial theorists theorists say that effectively the same situation exists here in Australia. Why is that wrong?
0: Yeah, I think this is a good comparison to talk about, both because settler colonial theorists often raise it, um, but also, I think, exposes some of the weaknesses in the theory. So, I mean, Israel, you have like an ongoing process of colonization where there's like a very violent conflict um, between the Israeli state and the mass of the Palestinians um and which yeah there's kind of a logic of elimination they want to like wipe them out take their land etc um but that is quite a different situation of australia right and again this is not about saying there's there's not racism or oppression towards indigenous people absolutely not but there's not a situation where like indigenous people control like part of the northern territory in western australia saying and they've got like their own militaries like fighting against the australian state which is what is happening in israel um, and some kind of rhetoric aside, since the end of the frontier wars, there isn't like ongoing colonial war between these two kind of forces. Um, you know, outside of, you know, people kind of might say that as a slogan, but it's not a reality. It's not actually what's kind of going on. Um, so it's quite a different situation. And that has impact kind of more broadly in society. So like in Israel, there's no real attempt to like accommodate or like promote the representation of Palestinian people in the Israeli state. You know, like they're not like, oh, we love Palestinians. Let's do like a welcome to country that we're on Palestinian land. Quite the opposite. They deny like Palestinian identity. They try and say they're not Palestinians, really, they're Jordanians or whatever. Um, they, uh, there's no discussion in Israeli society about like changing the day of Israeli Independence Day um, <laughs> or talking about how like, oh, we treat the Palestinians so bad. You know, when there's rallies around Palestine and Israel, often it's tens of thousands of people coming out saying we need to murder the Palestinians and drive them out, whereas in Australia, mm-hmm. there's big rallies to support Aboriginal people and say that we should change the date um, and that there should be like greater reforms in favour of them. So, yeah, it is quite a different situation, um, which I think shows yeah, some of the difficulties in kind of throwing around this settler-colonial term to describe very different uh, political situations these different kind of countries.
1: Yeah, and one of the, I mean, this can seem like nitpicking, nitpicking maybe to people, like uh, we just want to get our definitions very exact, <laughs> but I think there's important reasons to get this right. One of the obvious ones is um, is what it says about the broader Australian population, particularly the Australian working class, um, because at least in Israel, there are, you know, the masses of the population are very racist and um, many of them, not all, but many of them, are active participants in a process of colonization, like they're like I said, they're literally armed and trying to take over you know, um, Palestinian land in the West Bank. Uh, that's very different to to here. What does that say about like the Australian working class here? What are the some of the debates with the settler colonial theorists around that?
0: Yeah, I think this is probably the biggest problem with settler colonial theory. Really, like there's an analytical problem about how they understand um, indigenous oppression and whatnot, but the the biggest problem is, yeah, this kind of privilege politics idea, basically. They're like the settler populations, everyone who's non Indigenous, are all like benefiting from exploiting Indigenous people, basically. And that's a very common idea, which is talked about all the time. Um, so it just totally blurs the difference between like the ruling class, you know, big business, governments, and like working class, you know, white people, or not even just white people, like migrants, etc. as well, we are all kind of thrown in together as common exploiters of Indigenous people. Um, And, yeah, this is just, like, definitely not true. (laughs) Um, And it renders a lot of Australian history pretty inexplicable, I think. They can't actually explain what's kind of going on. Um, So some of this goes back to some of the history we were talking about earlier, like the reality is in Australia, yeah, most people were not involved even in colonial times and like, frontier wars and massacres against Indigenous people, um, and that their work is exploited by their bosses, exploited by the same companies and governments which also exploit Indigenous people. Um, and that's one of the reasons why there's been a whole history of, like, solidarity and support from, you know, the 1938 Day of Mourning and Protest um, to the uh, Pilbara Strike, 1946, to the you know, campaigns during the 60s and 70s, land rights and so forth. There's been trade unions, working class organizations, which have shown their support for Indigenous rights, which would not be possible if they were just this privileged layer. Um, I think it also distorts a lot of things about Australian society. So like one example is about migrants. So it's become really popular to say, yeah, like migrants, they're like just a part of oppressing indigenous people. In fact, maybe they're even the worst ones because they kind of think they're better because <laughs> they're oppressed by racism or something. And um, there's a really interesting book by um, Nadita Sharma that I reviewed in the Marxist Left Review, actually, which goes through this because it's an international phenomenon um, where people say things like, oh, migrants campaigning against racism, that's this reinforcing um indigenous oppression actually, um, because it's not challenging the settler colonial nature of the state. Um, it's not challenging the fact that they're settlers who are like privileged and um and whatnot. And Sharma, I think, makes a really bunch of good points against that. She says, like, this ignores the fact that these settler colonial societies are also racist societies that exploit against migrant people. So you're trying to say, oh, they're benefiting from the society which also exploits them. She could also say about working class people as well, right? Um so it's totally ignoring that. Um, And it's ignoring the potential for solidarities between workers, migrants, Indigenous people in um, the struggle for justice and and for equal rights. So, yeah, I think this is a really um, uh, destructive and inaccurate um, aspect to settler colonial theory. Absolutely.
1: And one of the arguments that some of these Australian historians who kind of believe the settler colonial theory stuff argue is that... uh, basically the ruling class has often used um, racism against Aboriginal people to sort of, uh, and, and gotten Australian workers on board with that in order to quell, quell kind of class conflict, basically. And the, the, this, this is a thing that has, you know, that settler colonial, th- um, settler colonial states tend to do. Is that true?
0: Uh, no, it's not. Yeah, and yeah, one of the prominent writers about this is Skyside Elkert. I think lives in the United Kingdom. He writes about yeah, settler colonialism. And this I think really exposes how like unhistorical settler colonial theory often is, that it's this pretty like abstract kind of dogmatic model they create and then they kind of force all society <laughs> to fit into it. So yeah, there's this idea which um, he and others talk about which is that, oh, in settler colonial societies um, the, when there's like an economic crisis or a political crisis or something going on the ruling class will um, channel away those problems into oppressing indigenous people. So they'll, like, increase exploiting indigenous people from their land and then give that land to working-class people in order to stabilize the situation, stop a crisis from happening. Now, like, abstractly, if you hear that, you can think, like, oh, yeah, maybe it's something ruling classes do in history or whatever in some countries. Um, That kind of makes logical sense of saying. Um, but it's not an actual dynamic. <laughs> it's a problem. Like in Australian history, I can't think of a single time when the government really tried to like give all this land to working class people by stealing it from Indigenous people in order to solve like the 1890s depression or the 1930s depression or like the 60s, 70s kind of, you know, huge radical uprising. They didn't say like, oh, here, yeah, working class people have all these like parcels of land. I'm going to kick all these Aboriginal people out and to give them to them. And partly this this exposes, I think, a bunch of the underlying problems of the settler-colonial argument because it's not surprising ruling classes haven't done that. There's one, indigenous people don't have control over any segment sections of land that are actually very useful. Um, So there's not all this land to take from Aboriginal people to give to working-class people because there has been a completed process of colonization which has dispossessed them and driven them from that. Um, So that's one part of it. Um, which is an yeah, important aspect to it. And then there's not like this relationship of privileges that the working class as a whole have over Indigenous people, where the ruling class can just use that um, to you know, move privileges from one to the other. Now, obviously, this doesn't um, mean that like, working class people don't have racist ideas about Indigenous people, have treat treated them poorly in a whole series of situations. Absolutely, they have. Um, but that doesn't mean there's a material basis to that, those ideas. Like, that's the whole argument of Marx is that like workers can unite the oppressed and exploited together, that there's not a reason for them to support that oppression exploitation. And to the extent that workers think these racist ideas, those ideas are an counter to their actual material interests. Um, it's negative that they accept the idea that Indigenous people are somehow in competition with them or not deserving of special privileges or whatever other crap people might think. Um, and that's important because um yeah, as we'll talk about in a future episode, like this is a whole history of solidarity and joint protests and struggle and stuff, which is not it is not explicable um if you think that like working class people are privileging from the exploitation of indigenous people and why would they support their struggles or unite with them in, in common movements?
1: Can settler colonial theory explain the emergence of class distinctions amongst Aboriginal people and something you talk about later in the book of um, the emergence of a kind of Aboriginal middle class and and ruling class, like how do they explain that or is that not within, does that not fit within the theory?
0: Yeah, that doesn't fit within the theory. So so like I was saying, the main problem I think with settler-colonial theory is first, there's the Indigenous middle class kind of question, like how has this layer arisen within society? How do you understand it? It doesn't really fit with the idea that there's a logic of elimination going on if you've also got a section of Indigenous people quite incorporated into mainstream Australian politics, Australian society, the Australian state, and so forth. And that that hasn't been a random thing, but it's being promoted by the ruling class, by the state, etc. They're quite happy to diversify sections of Australian institutions in order to incorporate and um, co-opt um, sections of Indigenous people like that. Or well, while they do that, they were being driven by a logic of elimination um so yeah can't really explain i think that whole kind of process uh very well at all really um a a marxist class analysis i think can explain it right like and it's not like it's unique to indigenous people look at african-americans the united states you know there was a black president (laughs) there's like black business people a huge number like the black middle class etc that hasn't ended oppression you can explain that in terms of the development of Class distinctions within oppressed and exploited groups over time in a way which um, explains it accurately while not pretending that that means racism and oppression is going anywhere because the vast majority of oppressed people are not going to significantly benefit out of that process. And I think you see a less developed but similar kind of directory in terms of Indigenous people in Australia. And
1: I guess finally, what does this debate with the settler colonial theorists mean for strategy in terms of how to actually end um, the oppression of Indigenous people, how to fight to end it, you know, what's the way forwards according to them?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, not very clear (laughs) as a starting point, I guess. Like, uh, a lot of settler colonial theorists do talk about uh, decolonisation as kind of like the strategy or the way forward. Um, I think one of the difficulties in talking about this is it is a pretty nebulous term. Um, you know, initially it was uh, designed to refer to the whole process by which you know, African, Asian, uh, Middle Eastern countries achieved independence and struggle against the colonial powers throughout the 20th century. But then since then, it's kind of become uh, used more broadly to refer to like processes of you know de-racializing kind of societies, structures, institutions and whatnot. Um, but within that, there's a whole series of different kinds of strategies. Some which are just like pretty standard kind of liberal moderate strategies, really like educating people and <laughs> um and promoting like greater representation, greater culture, etc. for oppressed people. That's what is going to lead um to overcoming racism or even more right wing kind of just promotion like private businesses run by people from oppressed backgrounds because that's like economically empowering them. That's what's going to kind of change the situation. And then there's people who are more on the radical side of that, so they kind of Associate decolonization with struggle, maybe even with kind of revolution, anti capitalism, and so forth. But because of the inaccuracies in the analysis of society that the settler colonial theorists use, it then leads to a lot of ambiguities in terms of strategy. So if you think that Australian society is in the grips of an ongoing process of colonization um, and and that Indigenous people suffer from colonization, then it follows you need some kind of like anti colonial struggle in order to um, combat racism and defeat it, um, which I think is very inaccurate and does not explain kind of the contemporary nature of Indigenous political life. Um, And yeah, leads down a bunch of rabbit holes. So one is a focus on the question of land. So obviously, like land rights is a very important issue for Indigenous people, even those who don't necessarily live in like, you know, um, land-based indigenous communities living in cities or whatever and there's been long history of protests and stuff around it Um, but settler colonial theorists often really narrow the focus of indigenous struggles around the question of land and that's linked to their analysis right because they're trying to say oh in settler colonial societies indigenous people are relevant they're marginalized and so the key dynamic is around dispossession and land not labor and exploitation they draw like a very sharp contrast between the two Um, but the reality is that like most indigenous people, like hundreds of thousands of them today, live in like capital cities or major cities, um, or at least in like very large country towns, um, and don't have that much connection directly to land rights struggles. Um, and they're definitely not being like oppressed by some kind of colonial structure or system. Like the oppression they suffer is from like the police, the courts, the welfare system, their bosses. You know the government, political parties, whatever it might be, all of which are you know, modern capitalist institutions who are pursuing their own interests, not because of some hangover from colonialism in the past or some ongoing colonial relationship, but uh, because it's an expression of the brutal and unequal nature of capitalist society itself. So I think the whole colonial analysis kind of distorts all that and confuses it, and uh, that then leads to a real distortion around strategy, because then it's like, well, how do you, how do you change the situation? What is this colonial structure which you're struggling against?
1: Yeah, and like you said earlier, it leads to not seeing the working class as this not just sort of valuable ally, but actually the I think a major social force that can um, challenge oppression, challenge racism, and ultimately overthrow the entire system that underpins it of capitalism. Um, and we will talk uh, in our next part of the podcast about just that, about some of the history of uh, Indigenous people and working class people fighting against racism in this country, which is a very rich history, I assure all of you, even if um, it's not the kind of thing you really learn about in uh, history class, Uh, but it's a a wonderful uh, history that Jordan has done some work to uncover some of its elements. So, thanks heaps for joining me, Jordan, and I look forward to our next chat.
0: Turley, see you next time. eh?
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. I highly recommend that you grab a copy of Jordan's book and have a read for yourself. There are tons of inspiring stories about the struggle for indigenous liberation throughout Australian history, and there's a lot of fresh research in there um, and a radical socialist perspective that you just won't get anywhere else. You can buy the book at Red Flag, uh, Red Flags Online Bookstore. So just go to shop.redflag.org.au and it's actually currently the first book on that page um, so you can get it delivered to your door. You can even read and listen along because we're going to do two more episodes with Jordan as he talks us through some of the other insights in the rest of his book. Um, So yeah, keep listening along and as always, we have a world to win.